Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, we're going to explore the period of prohibition and the temperance movement that came before it. And there's a lot of interesting stories that came out of Battle Creek and actually had an influence on the national scene in the temperance movement, which resulted in the 18th Amendment. So come along and join me. So the temperance movement preceded the era of prohibition. And prohibition is generally referred to between 1920 and 1933. And it was after the ratification of the 18th Amendment. Now, the 18th Amendment was an amendment that was passed by Congress in 1917. And it made illegal the manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol. And in 1919, the amendment to the Constitution was ratified by three-quarters of the nation's states at the time, which made it constitutional. So it took until 1919 before the full prohibition laws kicked in after the ratification of the 18th Amendment. And during this period, alcohol essentially became illegal. And anything from manufacturing, sale, or transporting alcoholic beverages in the United States between 1920 and 1933 was ultimately illegal, which brought a rise to bootlegging, moonshining, and all kinds of illegal production and sale of alcohol. And also speakeasies, which were illegal secretive drinking establishments that were established in various parts of the country. And they were capitalized on by organized crime. And so during the Prohibition era, you have the rise of individuals like Al Capone and several other characters that were during that time period. When you look at the era of Prohibition, it is often referred to or remembered as a period of gangsterism, and it was characterized by competition and violent turf battles between criminal gangs trying to gain control of the sale and manufacture of alcohol, and it was a black market industry gone wild. So before the 18th Amendment was passed and Prohibition came into being, there was a buildup to this, and it started in the 1820s and 1830s, and it was referred to as the Temperance Movement, which ultimately built and boiled over into the creation of the 18th Amendment. And the earliest wave of the 1820s and 1830s so we're talking about a hundred years before laws were actually passed, was started by intense religious movements back in that time period and included not only temperance but abolitionism and an abstinence pledge, which was introduced in the churches in the early 1800s. And so alcohol had its enemies way back in the early 1800s across the United States. And in Michigan, there were even some early advocates of temperance that were active here in Battle Creek. And one of those individuals was a man by the name of Elijah Pendle. And he was a native of South Byron, Genesee County, New York. 
and he came to Battle Creek in 1855. And on the occasion of the first city election in 1859, he was elected mayor, and then he was re-elected again in 1861, 1862, and also in 1864. And what's interesting about his time as mayor in Battle Creek is that he led the first campaign ever waged in Battle Creek against the saloons. He was married to Mary A. Jennings, and they had originally met in New York, and they'd married there. And shortly before the Civil War, also called the War of the Rebellion, a man by the name of Dr. D.O. Lewis came to Battle Creek and gave a series of temperance lectures. And he aroused so much enthusiasm with Mrs. Pendle that she took charge and became the lead lady of the temperance movement, and she's credited as forming the ladies' temperance movement here in Battle Creek. And they would go to the saloons, and they smashed beer kegs. They emptied the contents into the street. And can you imagine this group of angry women charging into the saloons and the bars and just grabbing the beer kegs and just overpowering everybody and just taking the... uh, kegs and punching holes in them and spilling them into the street. It must have been quite a scene. And according to newspapers at the time, it created a bit of excitement around town. And Mrs. Pendle was one of the leaders of the movement. And in later years, when Dr. D.O. Lewis passed away, he had written a memoir that he published as a book, and he credited the Women's Temperance Crusade having originated in Battle Creek and that Mrs. Pendle was the leader of the movement. So this would have been in the 1860s in Battle Creek that she engaged in this movement. And of course, the temperance movement built up across the country. There were women's leagues all over the country forming these temperance groups. And of course, it went through the Civil War and beyond during the Reconstruction period and began to build. And of course, if you look at the history of the United States, the period between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the century was referred to as the Gilded Age. And you have a lot of things going on during that period of time. You have this appearance of prosperity in certain areas and certain classes. But then you also have this paralleled with a lot of people being out of work, a lot of uh, people struggling for work, trying to get back into work. Soldiers that came home from the war were wounded and they were trying to get on with their lives. Then you had, of course, all of these black soldiers that now were into the workforce and the freed black slaves. And you have a lot of people that were struggling. It was a a period of hard economic times. And you had a lot of these saloons and things being built up to help people ease the struggles of their time and perhaps have a drink to uh, drink away their worries and troubles of the time. There's also prostitution. I did a podcast interview with Ambrose Hammond, who is an author out of Grand Rapids, that covered a lot of the prostitution in the Gilded Age in Grand Rapids. And it's a very fascinating interview, very interesting book. Um, She wrote a book called Wicked Grand Rapids, and she detailed a lot of the players during that period of time. So this Gilded Age comes about, and then we get into the past, the 1900 period, and the legislative push starts to build to, hey, we got to 
bring this thing under control. And we move into the era where the 18th Amendment starts being put on the table and ultimately gets drafted and passed. It gets ratified in 1919. So here we have the era of prohibition. So I thought it would be interesting to tell some stories of prohibition from the period here of Battle Creek. And there's a few stories that I've come across in my studies of local cemeteries that are kind of interesting. And they're from the uh, era of prohibition here in the Battle Creek area. But they also would include other areas of southwest Michigan as well. Of course, during the 1920s, we have the sanitarium in Battle Creek and Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the key figure in charge of the sanitarium. He was the doctor running the entire operation there. And in the Battle Creek Moon Journal of Saturday, April 24th, 1926, there's a big article on the front page that says, local doctor tells league alcohol is evil. Discredited drug, says sanitarium head answering wet argument. And he proclaimed that alcohol had no place in medicine and there were enormous benefits through prohibition and of course we're already in the era of prohibition and i think there was beginning to be some pushback from the medical community that hey alcohol has its value in the in medicine for obvious purposes and here we have this entire prohibition on the manufacture of alcohol so he comes out vocally against alcohol in the use of medicine and in this article, he proclaims that 20% of the inmates of our asylums are those directly as a result of alcohol. Our annual crop of lunatics, idiots, imbeciles, and epileptics are due to alcoholism and allied causes. And it's growing faster than the progeny of the sane and sound. Already we have an aristocracy of one million lunatics, idiots, imbeciles, and epileptics supported by the state at the cost of $100 million annually. And that was Dr. John Harvey's argument as opposing alcohol in general. And he had four conclusions that he said supported his position. And the four conclusions that were part of a study on alcohol during the period is one, alcohol supplies nothing which the body needs or can utilize advantageously. Number two, alcohol is a poison, a deadly poison in large doses, and a slow poison in smaller doses, which Obviously, there is some truth to that. People could die from drinking too much alcohol. And of course, it probably uh, bears out with alcoholism as a problem even into present day America. So there's some truth to number two that he's stating. Then he goes into alcohol in all doses diminishes muscular strength, nerve energy and sensibility, endurance and vital resistance. And his fourth point was alcohol, especially wine and beer, hinders digestion. So those were his positions on it. It would be interesting to note what the present-day medical society and studies state about those four positions on it. Certainly, alcohol can kill somebody with too much alcohol. That is a proven scientific fact. But the argument about wine digestion may or may not be accurate. I don't know. I'm not a physician, but I've heard studies or statements otherwise that wine 
can help aid with digestion. So hard to say. It just It's a very interesting historical note, and that was John Harvey Kellogg's position on it. And of course, he was a prominent figure here in Battle Creek with the Battle Creek Sanitarium. So let's move on to another interesting story related to Prohibition. In 1927, there was a man by the name of Lou Boomhauer, who was pretty well known in the Battle Creek area. He had owned a auto parts store he was also an accomplished orchestra leader and player. He had uh, he was a musician in an orchestra here in Battle Creek. And his orchestra would play at a lot of functions around town. And he also owned and operated a business called the Silver Slipper, where they held a dance club and they had fancy meals and restaurant-type atmosphere. And in 1927, in June, his restaurant, the Silver Slipper, was raided. The police officers came in, handed him some papers, accused him of selling alcohol to his patrons. He denied it, and he said, you're welcome to search the premises. And then he said to them when they were searching the premises, by the way, you're going to find a few bottles of beer in the back refrigerator in my office that are for personal use only. And The result of that was they raided the place. They didn't find any other alcohol other than where he said it was. And he claimed that he never gave it to his patrons, nor did he sell it. And the fact that it was in his business, they ultimately charged him with alcohol in the business. He challenged it in court, and the end result was he spent 30 days in jail for violating the laws of prohibition. So he had some beer in the fridge, and went to jail. And it was very interesting because it kind of splashed all over the newspaper during that time period and made some headlines. And um, But can you picture just having a nice dinner with your spouse or somebody at a restaurant and having the police come in and uh, suddenly they stop all operations, stop all the, sh- the waiters and the, and the restaurant staff and the, rest, the, the chefs and the cooks and they stop everything and they go through and they're turning over every cabinet and everything. It must have been quite an experience to endure. And I think that was a common practice during that time period is that somebody would report an establishment for selling alcohol and it was up to the police department whether they took action on it. And in the case of the Silver Slipper, they did. And um, Lou Boomhauer was arrested. He challenged it in court. And he, of course, lost in court because it was a federal law. And even though they could not prove that he was selling alcohol, I guess possession of it was enough to cause him to have to serve 30 days in jail. And I covered Lou Boomhauer's story when I did a video on Hicks Cemetery up in Penfield, Michigan, because that's where he's buried. And that's where I kind of uncovered that story. Now, there's another story of an individual I came across at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. Mount Olivet Cemetery is located right across from Oak Hill Cemetery, if you're unfamiliar with the area. And the story came out of the life of a man named Frank Obraz, which was a grave that I found and filmed in that cemetery. And I did some research on it. And I, of course, wanted to know about who he was. And I was really putting together a video for that cemetery to tell multiple stories. And the information that I discovered on him was quite interesting. He was just a regular worker that worked in Battle Creek. And I forgot where exactly he was employed. But he wasn't any kind of business owner like Lou Boomhauer was. He was just a regular guy going to work 
coming home at night and he wanted to drink. And of course, this was in the era of prohibition. And in 1923, the police raided his home and they caught him with a three burner oil stove, a 10 gallon copper boiler and a cover and a copper coil and five quarts of liquor in a barrel. And they were all taken in the raid. And the way they raided his home is they, um, I guess they had him under surveillance. And they waited until he went to a pool hall one evening. And it was probably where he was selling his alcohol was at the pool hall. And probably to have, and it was probably one a big operation. It was probably selling it to a few buddies to make some extra bucks on the side. And so he went to the pool hall one evening. They raided his home. And of course, when he came home, they arrested him. He went before Circuit Court Judge Walter H. North, who's an individual that was a prominent judge here in the Battle Creek area. He was a Circuit Court Judge. He's also buried at Oak Hill Cemetery, and his story claim to fame was he also was the presiding judge over the legal disputes between John Harvey Kellogg and William Keith Kellogg over the name Kellogg's and decided that court case in favor of William Keith Kellogg. That's a whole separate story. But so Walter North was a pretty well-known judge in the area. And Walter North, of course, had the fall of the laws of the time. And this being a federal charge when you were caught with alcohol, I mean, this was how serious this was during Prohibition. He was sentenced, um, Franz Obraz was sentenced, and he was only 29 years old. He was sentenced to... 60 days in the Detroit House of Correction, and he had to pay a fine of $100. So he spent 60 days in jail and had to pay a $100 fine, which I guess that would have been the equivalent of several thousand dollars in present day. And Franz, sadly enough, um, got busted another time, and then he was found dead in his home um, when he passed away a few years later. And he died just before they ended Prohibition, the poor guy. And he was found, I guess his wife had gone out and she found him. He had been sick in bed. My guess from what I was reading in the stories, the guy had been withdrawing from alcohol. I mean, he probably was still making some on the side. And he got he, he got up to go to the bathroom and came back and, and passed out before he got to his bed and he hit his head on the bed frame and he died from his injury. And he was a, a fairly young guy, you know, in his thirties. So prohibition um, really made life rough for him. And I'm sure that he had a hard time getting a job after he'd been arrested too. So kind of a sad story about the era of prohibition and they branded him a bootlegger. And of course, and in the newspaper, they had this big cartoon on the day he was arrested that kind of characterized him as making fun of him, like, oh, homebrew is the is the little drawing that was there and uh, showed him cooking at home on the kitchen stove. And that's probably what he did. He probably had a kitchen stove set up and it was um, distilling alcohol in the kitchen just so you could have a drink. Another story I came across was published in the Battle Creek Inquirer and the Evening News in May of 1933, and the title of the story is Raiders Seize Huge Still on Farm Near City. And this occurred out in Level Park, which is the Urbandale area, essentially, and a barn that was raided by the police. Three men were arrested, and they were all Italian, 
And the article says that they were believed to be members of the Lupino Gang. And it was the largest alcohol distilling plant ever uncovered in Calhoun County. So big that it dwarfed that one that was found in the Austin farm earlier that year. And it was raided by a posse of county and federal officers in an old barn about four miles north of Old Fine Lake Road about 6 a.m. today which was in May of 1933. And the article describes that three Italians, alleged operators, were arrested. Two of them, when they drove up to the farm as officers stood around outside, were pursued a short distance by a sheriff's operatives and later taken and arrested. And um, they give their names and the the wife and the children were apparently asleep in the house, and, and they were not involved in the operation, according to the article. So they were reported to be members of a gang called the Lupino Gang, and it was a group that the federal agents had been after for quite some time. When they raided, they referred to the plant of alcohol to be cold at the time. The place was raided today. The entire plant was cold, meaning that no alcohol had been produced in the last 48 hours. There was no supply of sugar or other materials used in producing alcohol on hand, but there were six huge vats of corn mash, which were found bubbling and probably would have been pumped into cookers and run off into liquor within the next day or two. And they confiscated about 70 gallons of alcohol. The barn, which housed the distillery, was cleverly camouflaged. Chickens and pigs ran about the yard, and the cracks in the old building were stuffed with corn fodder. The huge plant used for the distilling included six large mash vats, 10 feet in diameter and 6 feet in height, each capable of holding 3,000 gallons of mash, and two steam boilers, each of which were large enough to run a 20-horsepower engine, and two large cookers, one for distilling and the other for distilling the alcohol. Samples of the alcohol that were confiscated were tested at 186 proof, which is only a few degrees lower than the highest possible test for alcohol. So those are just a few stories of the period of prohibition here in the Battle Creek area. And I'm sure there are many, many more stories around Southwest Michigan. An earlier podcast episode that I covered was just tracing some of the places that Al Capone had stayed and operated from in Southwest Michigan. And there were quite a number of those places, so you should probably listen to that episode. It's kind of interesting, and it's been one of my more popular episodes on this podcast. But that's going to do it for today's journey through history. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com and feel free to send me a message on there if there's a story that you feel I should explore and perhaps make into a future episode. I have lots of people that do that every week and some of the information they send me, I do use in future episodes. Not all of it do I guarantee I ever will. Some of it is pretty esoteric in nature, and but it is always welcome and I enjoy um, reading the messages that I receive from my listeners. 
And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale from Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.